I'd like you to turn to the book of Esther. We're going to talk about faith that overcomes. And in this first session, I want to talk about God honouring faith, the kind of faith that honours God. I believe with all of my heart that faith isn't just uh, an abstract thing. It's actually to do with our trust in God. It comes out of relationship. So that's really important to me. So the first thing when we look at the book of Esther is we need to be looking at God honouring faith. Now, the interesting thing about the book of Esther is God doesn't get a mention in the whole book. (laughs) It's the story of this person, Esther, hence the name of the book, and the environment in which she finds herself towards the end of the exile. People were beginning to be taken back from the Babylonian captivity that they'd been experiencing. You know that... uh, Let's give you a little bit of Bible background here so that you know what's going on. Okay, the nation of Israel split in two. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And it was a tempting target for some of the big powers around. And initially, it was the Assyrians that decided, let's invade Israel. And so they went for the northern kingdom, And the northern kingdom got invaded by the Assyrians. They got scattered. The ten tribes that were in the north never actually came back to totally occupy their territory. They were mixed up with all kinds of other races that the Assyrians had picked up here, there and everywhere because they got the idea that if you mixed everyone up, no one would have an identity that would challenge the Assyrians. The Assyrians also tried to take the southern kingdom, the two tribes that were in the south. But they were resisted. But the king who resisted them, Hezekiah, was so thrilled the success he'd had seeing off the Assyrians and recovering from a major health issue, that when some Babylonians came and said, we've just come to say how pleased we are that you've recovered and all the rest of it, he showed them everything he got. And so the Babylonians decided, why don't we invade this southern kingdom? And they did. They came and they took it. It took a while, but eventually they took most people off into captivity. Some stayed. In fact, the ones that stayed in the land had a tougher time than the ones that went into captivity. Some people fled to Egypt. That was a problem for them too. But eventually, at the end of this period of captivity, which when you read the Bible, you sense was very much under the hand of God. God is a God who intervenes in history in order to work things in his people. And he was working in these people all the time through this captivity. And then they were gradually brought back. So you had the captivity or the exile and then the restoration. So the restoration was underway, but there were still people that were living far away from that southern kingdom. By this time, the Babylonians had been overwhelmed by the Medes and the Persians. But it wasn't instant that there was a restoration. And so we have here in the book of Esther a time when there are still Jewish exiles living under foreign rule a long way away from the southern kingdom where they originally came from. And this whole story is set in that kind of environment. Now, because it doesn't specifically mention God and it's in the Bible, people have worked really hard to say, why is it there? And how can we see God in this? 
And one of the tempting things that you can do, and it can be done incredibly effectively, is to say, well, maybe it's totally symbolic. Maybe what we need to do is to look at the main characters in the story and make them symbolic. And that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. So you could say, Ahasuerus, the king, represents God Almighty. You could say, Esther, she represents the church because she becomes the bride to the king. You could say, Haman, who crops up later, is the devil because he comes with so much wickedness to try and destroy what God is doing. Now, that is fine. And I was initially thinking I would probably preach along those lines. But the more I read it and read it and read it, I felt there's something else we could get out of it today. We could actually look at how faith can overcome in the midst of really challenging situations. So I started looking at this king Ahasuerus and I realized that he wasn't the kind of king that I would say truly represents God. You can see certain things there, his sense of power and authority, but there are so many other things which just struck me as, whoa, if that's a type, then it's not a very good type. So I'm not speaking against anything because I've been really blessed. I wrote a foreword for a book that really blessed me a while back where someone actually said, the church needs to move from being a Vashti church to being a Esther church. And I thought that was brilliant because I actually looked at it and I could see that there is a transition that needs to take place. But as I also looked at it, I thought, do you know, I think Vashti had a raw deal. And so I started looking at these things and thinking, she had a lot to overcome. And so did Esther. And I started thinking more about, well, maybe we shouldn't think that we're looking at a type of the Almighty with Ahasuerus, but looking at the kind of person who is a bad boss. You wish you'd got someone who treated you differently, but you're stuck with this one. And, and how do you deal with it? Because that's what overcoming faith is about. You're in a situation where you need to get the victory, and it can be tough. So I'm going to make no apologies when I say that we're going to look at a discriminatory environment, because I think it was tough. I don't think Ahasuerus' kingdom would have done very well on current equality's agenda. <laughs> I think it was also a commodifying regime where it treated people more as objects than as individuals who need to know the love and grace of God. But in the midst of all of this, we see something happening in the heart of Esther, who's the main character of the book. That even in the midst of all of this, when she could have been really brought low by the oppressive regime and everything that was happening to her, she found a way of honoring God in the midst of it. And the way it gets exemplified is that, interestingly enough, she had to keep her heart open even when she had to keep her mouth closed. And that can be hard for a lot of us, can't it? Because we want to open our mouth and the first thing that will come out is a complaint. Or, if you're British, a whinge, you know? It is the same as a complaint, but it's just the sort of English version of a complaint. And 
what you can end up with is, is a misunderstanding in your own heart of just how practical faith is. It's about how to get you through these kind of situations in a realistic way. And sometimes it's, it's allowing God to work in your heart when you're tempted to speak out and God's saying, now just hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. There's something I'm working in you. And that to me is the mark of God honoring faith. You know that the walls of Jericho fell down. And you know they fell down because they shouted. But they also fell down because 12 times before they shouted, they walked round in silence. <laughs> and that was, that was discipline. I don't know how you get a whole nation to walk around massive walls in silence. I'm sure some people would have been tempted to say to their neighbor as they walk around, see those walls? I don't think those walls are ever going to come down. You know, there, there are people who undermine faith by their negativity. And, and you know, you end up, you think, well, I, I can't walk with this person anymore. I'll try the next one. And they say exactly the same thing, except they've got an even more negative view on it. <clears throat> and, you know, they're, they're probably saying by this time, I think it's about time we had a word with Joshua. <clears throat> And as for, you know, this idea that we're all going to blow ram's horns, have you heard a noise a ram's horn makes? You know the shofar. Some people think it sounds like music. Um, <laughs> I, I struggle. It, it, it definitely has a unique sound. You know? I was doing a conference in Cincinnati some years ago, and they opened the conference with a whole group of people playing shofars. And afterwards, I was introduced to the man who is the president of the World Shofar Association. <laughs> he asked me if I could do some recruiting for him. So if you do play the shofar, I can probably put you in touch with the man in Cincinnati who is the president of the World Shofar Association, or whatever its current title is. But you could be thinking, come on, God, this isn't, this isn't the way to bring down the walls. This isn't going to happen. But that walking in silence and that waiting on God and doing that total obedience thing. And yeah, some of us would have struggled at the end when we were told to shout because we'd think, no one's told us what to shout. <laughs> they weren't told what to shout. They weren't to shout, glory, hallelujah, the sword of the Lord. And Joshua, we now triumph. They were just told, shout. I don't know what they shouted. Hello. <laughs> Fall down, whatever. I don't know. But some of us have got this idea that there needs to be a whole martial element in these things. But when it comes to spiritual warfare, your contribution works because you're being you in the situation. And you're shouting what you want to shout, even if someone else is shouting something different. And we need to keep that in mind as we go through here. Esther had a unique contribution in this whole area of spiritual warfare. She wasn't someone that you would have thought was a likely candidate to take on Haman. <laughs> You would have looked for someone else, wouldn't you? Rather than a slip of a girl who was being monitored and mentored by her cousin. But in the midst of it, that's who God used. So why do I say that the first thing that she had to deal with was a discriminatory environment? Well, first thing I noticed is this. That when Ahasuerus threw a party his wife had to organize a separate one. That doesn't go down well with the Equalities Commission, really, does it? But that was the culture of the day. So you could have a great party, 
And it was all the men there. And the women were told, just go and organize yourself somewhere else. And then there comes a point where the king, this has been going on for days now. This wasn't just a, you know, a lunch do. This party went on and on and on. And then we read in the, in the first chapter of Esther that it came to the point where the king on the seventh day, verse 10 this is of Esther 1, on the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine, you see he was half drunk in order to think of his wife. I mean this is how discriminatory it was. <clears throat> didn't seem to have thought of her for the first six days and now he's quite tipsy and he's, he thinks of his wife. So he commands Mehuman, Bistha, Habana, Bigtha, why do they have names like this? Abagtha, Zetha and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner towards all those who knew law and justice, those closest him being another bunch of people whose names I won't pronounce, seven princes of Persia and Media who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law because she did not obey the command of King Azurus brought to her by the eunuchs? And Memucan answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are all in the provinces of King Azurus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women, so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report King Azurus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. Now, I can understand why, if Ahasuerus really is a picture of the Almighty, that Vashti needed to be sidelined. Because if it's Almighty God that is saying something to you, like, you know, I want people to admire what I've done in your life, you want to come because you know he's worked that kind of miracle in you. And you can say, yes, this is, a, is an image of that. But this is... This is at a level where the dominion that he's exercising, even in terms of current dominion theology, is something that I would want to question. Because in Genesis, when it says that we should have dominion, it doesn't say have dominion over one another. It says of the birds of the air and the beasts in the field. This isn't meant to be where I'm the boss and you are so subservient that you do exactly everything I say. I want to do everything that Jesus says. I want to do everything to honor him and please him. But if I had a boss who ignored me for seven days, and then when he was a bit drunk said, do you think you could just come in and just see everyone how great you are? I might be tempted to say, do you know, I'd rather not. <laughs> so I felt it was quite a discriminatory environment. Now, I'm not saying that for that reason, Vashti's a great role model. But what I do think is incredible is that Esther was prepared to go into that environment and find a way in that environment where she could honor God. 
So this is what I'm looking at. I'm looking at the things that we have to overcome in order to be a testimony. And sometimes you find yourself in an environment where you realize the world is not a great place to be. Because one of the things we have to overcome, I know when we talk about spiritual warfare, we think, oh, come on, let me out the devil. But before you deal with the devil, you've got to deal with the world. Before you deal with the devil, you've got to deal with your flesh. (laughs) And it's knowing how to deal with the world. It's knowing how to read the situation. I think Esther had her eyes open. She wasn't, you know, I I read this so many times because I'd always grown up with the impression that cousin Mordecai had seen this moment when there was a great opportunity to advance his brother's daughter and actually put her forward in part of the recruitment program for the new queen. I don't know where I got that from because it doesn't actually say that in the text. It says she was, it says different things in different versions. This is the new King James. It says, so it was when the king's command and decree were heard and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the custody of Hester, they they were just taken. In fact, the verse before talks about this. It says, Mordecai brought up Hadesha, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her his own daughter. So it was when the king's command and decree was heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel, it just seems that they were roped in. You know, if you were half good looking, let's get you in the harem. And Mordecai, I don't think he was thrilled at this prospect of seeing this this girl that he'd loved, he'd cared for, suddenly pressed into the harem. Because it says he stayed outside every day. I think he was deeply concerned about her. Because she'd been press-ganged into that situation. I'm sorry if I'm turning Esther upside down for you at the moment. But I'm, I'm doing this with a purpose, because I think overcoming faith is about overcoming something. And I think it's overcoming something in a way that's realistic. It's not about ignoring it. If there is a discriminatory environment, then be alert to the fact that there's a discriminatory environment and start thinking, now how am I going to go into that situation and exercise overcoming faith? Because if you're not alert, you can't even see what the world's doing to you. How are you going to spot what the devil's doing? Most Christians get confused on these kind of things. But the world is a challenging place. Not everything is the way that we would like. And the church is very good at complaining that the government has passed this legislation and has passed that legislation. But I am just glad the government has passed some legislation because this would be a dreadful place to live if there was no legislation. If everyone was doing that which was right in their own eyes, abusing this person here and treating that person like something else there, it would be a terrible place to live. Now, they don't always get it right in government. But you need some kind of discernment when you're facing the world. It isn't full of the wisdom of God. God gives wisdom to his church. He also gives a measure of wisdom to those in leadership. But we need to be clear that the world has its challenges for us. So we need an overcoming faith that can triumph in a discriminatory environment. Where people don't love you where they don't think that you're the best person in the world, where they put undue demands on you, 
I'm not saying Vashti got it right, but I can understand why she protested. Because she was being treated as a nothing. She was expected to have her own little private do with the ladies because they were second-class citizens. In fact, second-class probably was not anywhere near where they were put. Because if you look at the hierarchy that was already in the land, you've got the princes, you've got the eunuchs, you've got all of this. She might have been Queen Vashti, but even the eunuchs could come and tell her what she was meant to do. And, and we need to know how to, how to handle that environment. Now, sometimes we think, I must protest. But before we protest, sometimes we need to think, actually, how do you want me to exercise overcoming faith? Because if we can overcome the world, and Jesus said, you know, that he has overcome the world. So we need to be world overcomers in him. There is a strength that comes from God that can make it possible to be a testimony to him in a negative environment. You sense in what I'm saying? I'm, I'm not just talking about women's rights here. I'm talking about everybody's rights. I'm talking about everybody's rights. We need to be in an environment where people are loved and respected. And I know this much about God. When God commands me, I know that he still loves and respects me. I don't think that he would just expect me to, to, to do a little twirl in front of people just to see, look what I've done. I think he's got a deeper value that he places on our lives. He doesn't ex expose us either when, when he knows that the work within us is not yet finished. He doesn't, he doesn't sort of <laughs> put you in a position where you're expected to perform beyond that which he has accomplished in your life. There's something about just being a testimony that isn't this pressurized. We've got royal robes that we can wear. We've got a crown that he puts on our head. But he, he doesn't then put you in a situation where he's treating you as if you're just an object. Now, I was only the other day in a situation where someone was talking about the next thing I want to pick up on. Because we've, we've got Esther now. She's been gathered together with all of these other beautiful young women to be brought into the harem. And that was tough. It was tough for her. I want you to think like this. I know, I know there's a sort of myth out there that every woman, this would be her dream, to be dragged into the harem of the king. But I can even see from some of the shaking heads out there that some of you wouldn't really fancy that. <clears throat> and, and, and when the Lord recruits us, we have a choice, don't we? There's no one going to be knocking on the door of heaven saying, let me out, I never intended to be here. <clears throat> and so we've got a God who comes with a completely different approach towards us. But the world sometimes dragoons us and and, and she, she was in there with all of these other people and she was treated like a commodity. When I said it was a commodifying regime, th there was a set pattern you had to go through. It was, the, it was the harem conveyor belt. You came in on one end and you had to be soaked in certain oils for six months and then you had to go through another thing for six months. I mean... I don't know, but I, I, I think Esther must have had a pretty good brain. 
But I don't think anyone was interested in her brain at that point. As far as I can see, they didn't do anything other than just soak around in oil and purifying ointments. I, yeah, I know there are ladies who'd say to me, oh, oh, if only I could have a spa weekend. <laughs> this wasn't a weekend. This was a whole year of mud baths and cucumbers stuck on your eyelids and all of these kind of things. It, it, in the end, you think, this is not being treated in the way that someone should be treated. And why was all of this done? I mean, sorry to be so blunt, but it was so that you could have one night with the king to see if he liked you or not. And then he'd move on to the next one. I mean, might be more than one a night, who knows. Because I don't think that this was about building relationship. <laughs> it was about try this one, reject it, try that one, reject it. That one I put on the maybe list. You know, I mean, it was, it was, it was commodification. It was a conveyor belt rolling through the harem and somehow Esther was on this conveyor belt. And she, now, now the good thing is that somewhere in this, the, the, the chief eunuch saw something in her that he liked. Now at this point, I start thinking about Daniel. Because it's the same kind of system, isn't it? Daniel's been dragooned in now. He's a good-looking man, he comes from the right background, he's from the nobility, all of these kind of things, he's bright, he's got all of this, and they want to teach him the wisdom and the language of the Chaldeans. That's great. It's a great honor in some ways. One of the things I was saying in the conference last Saturday was that I think people need to be secure in their identity before they start operating in a culture that's not their own. Someone, someone said to me, how do you manage to operate cross-culturally? I said, I don't actually. And they looked a bit blank and I said, no, I'll immerse myself in whichever culture I'm in and just operate in that one. Because it's almost impossible to operate cross-culturally. If, if I'm in Nigeria, comparing everything with what it's like in Britain, I'm, I'm, it's not going to work. If I'm in Pakistan saying, oh, the drains aren't like this in you know, Bromley, You'll soon get fed up with the drains in Pakistan. You know, it's just, wherever you're at, you minister in that situation. Uh, and, that, and that's what you do. You just think, God, make me relevant right here, right now. And you have to be so secure in your culture <laughs> that you don't have to carry that culture into something else. You can say, okay, right, I'm secure enough. I can, I can learn something else. You can teach me something else. I'll learn the language and the, the culture of the Chaldeans. But... Daniel never forgot who he was. He immersed himself in that culture, but he didn't forget who he was. He didn't go through an identity crisis. He didn't pretend to be something he wasn't. And so he said, look, actually, I don't need this kind of stuff. Now, I, I tend to do this myself. I'm, I'm, I'm at a great advantage. I used to be. I used to travel a lot with Trevor, and Trevor eats anything. So if there was something I didn't like on my plate, I'd just put it on his. <laughs> the downside was that then whoever was hosting you would come back and say, Oh, Pastor Hugh, you finished already. Have some more. <laughs> so I've been through that so many times. But you know, Daniel was saying, Look, I, I, I don't actually eat that. And there are, there are reasons why I don't eat that stuff. Okay. And what he was doing was he was honoring God and not pandering to his flesh. Okay? Because I've said we have to overcome the world, but we also have to overcome the flesh. 
And if you're going to be involved in any kind of spiritual warfare against the devil, and all you're thinking of doing is to pamper your flesh, you are not going to get very far in that fight. He knows too many tricks to knock out those that are busy pampering themselves. He will make you so self-conscious. I was, I was on a train um, the other weekend. I was speaking in Middlesbrough and Chester. And uh, I thought, well, they're north of Watford. They must be close to each other. I didn't realize that, in fact, one's on one side of the country and one's on the other. And, and there's no direct train link between the two. So I spent quite a lot of time on trains going from Middlesbrough to Chester and then speaking at Chester and then going back to Leeds. And it was a whole new experience for me. But also, it was a new experience for me being on trains late at night on a Saturday. I had no idea what people came back from parties like, you know? <laughs> I, it was extraordinary. On my train, there was a guy who was about six foot four in fishnet tights and a miniskirt, doing his makeup all the way. And the person sitting next to me thought, I'd like my picture taken with that person. But it was incredible. This, my heart really went out to, well, to both guys, actually. But just, just how self-absorbed you can become. And, and I thought it was a self-absorption that came out of pain. And I thought, what has the devil done to make that person so self-absorbed? How many times has he been rejected by everyone else that he thinks the only person who loves him is him? And, and it really made me think. But I know once we start pampering the flesh, the devil really can say, I don't have to worry about you anymore. <laughs> you're not going to fight me, are you? You're just, you're just so, so obsessed with all of this that I can just keep you in that little... And, and Esther could have done that, couldn't she? She could have become obsessed with the beauty treatment. Huh? This guy had, uh, I'm sure it was a wig, but it was, it was a huge shock of red hair. And when the man sitting next to me decided he'd like to take a selfie with this person, and, and it wasn't any offense because this guy was just dying to have a selfie taken of him, but the amount of trouble he went to to arrange his hair was, was incredible. And, and I kept thinking, you know, this... This is where we can get so self-absorbed. And I kept thinking of Esther, because I knew I was going to teach on this, and I was thinking, she could have got so self-absorbed, couldn't she? With all that pampering. You know, oh, you know what some people are like, oh, I've just spotted a little blemish. Come on, you know. I, I was at a conference recently, and we were going to meet the president of a particular country, and I noticed that some of the people that were also going to meet him were actually really delaying everything because they were still getting ready. And I was tempted to say to them, I don't think the president's going to notice. <laughs> but I realized it actually wasn't about the president. They wanted to feel confident. And so we were getting later and later, and I was thinking, oh my goodness, you know. This wouldn't work in some countries. <laughs> but it's that self-absorption. And... Can you think what she had to overcome when every day the only reason she got up was to look more beautiful by the end of the day than she did when she got up in the morning? And that was it. All of that. All for just one night with a man who was going to mark her out of ten. That's commodification. And, and you know, that is exactly what happens 
when people start pandering to the flesh. We've got to overcome that. You are an individual. You are unique. You have things in your life that are so different from that which anyone else carries. God made you you. <laughs> he didn't just put you on a conveyor belt and say, oh, here's another one. You're special. And the only way that you're going to discover how special you are is letting God work in your life. Because when we start comparing ourselves among ourselves, we're not wise. We end up just trying to ape someone else. I remember when my daughter was involved in a, a school rebellion against school uniform. They all decided that they'd had enough of sticking to the regulations of school uniform, which said that the skirt had got to be a certain length and the jumper had got to be a certain type. And, and so they all rebelled. And you couldn't tell the difference between any of them because they all rebelled in exactly the same way. <laughs> I could spot my daughter before, but once they went into this, they all had skirts down to their ankles. It was like the suffragettes all over again. It looked exactly like that. You know, they all wore their round neck jumpers instead of V-neck jumpers. And, and everyone looked the same. And I thought, wow, if that's rebellion, <laughs> isn't that incredible? But in some ways, that's so easily what happens when we start losing that sense of self-worth. And God wants us to have that sense of self-worth. His body is made up of different parts. And, and you, it works because we're different. And we've got different gifts and we've got different skills. And I think this Ahasuerus must have been a real idiot to think that all he'd got to do was turn all of these people into identical little models and choose which one he wanted. We haven't got a record in the book of Esther that's like the record in Daniel. In Daniel, we know how he coped with it. He said, do a test, all right? <laughs> I'll, I'll stick by my principles, and you can see whether I look deficient or not at the end of the process. And at the end of the process, he looked better than anybody else. That happens when you can be who you are in the presence of the Lord. And I think that Esther overcame that whole commodifying thing. I want you to overcome it. Why am I doing all of this? Because we're going to go on and talk about spiritual warfare stuff in a minute. How to deal with Haman, how to deal with the devil, how to deal with the attacks, how to wrestle with principalities and powers. And you say, oh, we wrestle not with flesh and blood. Look, if you haven't got your flesh in order, you're not going to be able to wrestle with the enemy. Paul says he, he would beat himself after he'd preached to make sure that he wasn't lost after he'd preached to everyone else. He, he, was, he was tough on himself. He kept himself constantly fit for the fight. I reckon he did that physically as well. Because, you know, sometimes if you let yourself go, you just let yourself go in every area, don't you? And sometimes it's just so important to say, look, I'm going to stay focused on this. I'm going to stay spiritually fit. I'm going to read the Word. I'm going to spend time in God's presence. You say, well, I'm not up against a big obstacle at the moment. Why do I need to do that? <laughs> you need to stay fit so that you're ready when the fight comes. <coughs> to get fit in order to fight is not going to work for you. So I'm, I'm laying a foundation here. 
and saying that if you're going to honour God in the situation, you need that as your daily focus, just as routine. Even before you can say, I'm up against a major problem here, just stay spiritually fit, stay spiritually alert. One of the things I've been really impressed with is, is, I mean, take the church here, for example, that have been battling certain issues. I know that the fitness of the church contributed to the effectiveness in the fight. You didn't have to get fit because the challenge had come. There was a fitness, and we need to maintain that level of spiritual fitness. Because if we're alert, we can see things happen. And I'm amazed at how many Christians are saved, satisfied, and stuck. That's it, you know? There's no awareness that actually there's a challenge out there. There's a, there's a battle to be fought. There are challenges that come. And we just think, oh, well, you know, if I don't bother the devil, he won't bother me. And, and apathy reigns. So I think she had a challenge. We don't know how she dealt with it. But I know she did, because I can see the character of Esther that comes out later in this book. She wasn't someone who was turned into a mindless non-entity by the whole process of a year of just being saturated and pampered in a harem, just for one night with the king. Somehow, she kept herself alert. And I want to commend Mordecai, her cousin at this point, because from the moment she was gathered into that harem, it says that he was outside. He was outside. <laughs> and one of the things that you realize when you're talking about winning battles and overcoming faith, you're not on your own in this. <laughs> there are other people that are praying for you, standing with you. And I love the fact that that man was outside the harem. It says in verse 11 of chapter 2 of Esther, And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. That's commitment, isn't it? Are you grateful for people that have had that kind of watchfulness over your life? Some of us would think that was interfering. <laughs> Someone pacing up and down outside saying, I'm, I'm really concerned about you. But we need to carry that concern for one another. I don't know what your prayer list is like. <laughs> but you need to be lifting up people other than yourself to the Lord. Because if you do, the principle given, it shall be given unto you. If you're lifting up others, God will be raising up others to lift you up. And that's partly how it works, isn't it? And it's amazing to think of this Mordecai pacing up and down outside the harem. This, that, that's, that is spiritual. Spiritual warfare too, isn't it? That, that, that isn't, this isn't possessive anxiety. It's not sentimentality. Oh, my, my dear little cousin's in there and oh, I'm so worried about her. No, I think every pace was a deliberate step. You know, I want to know how she's doing. She's going to survive in that place. She's going to come out tops in this somehow. 
we're going to see this situation that seems so negative turn to advantage. I'm going to pray that she doesn't just become a soft touch for the king, but actually she's someone who retains all the spark and integrity. I think he'd mentored her. Her father had died. He was her older cousin. He'd brought her up. And if you're bringing someone up, you can put a spark on the inside of them. You, you can fan into flame that which is their individuality. And then you can pace up and down outside saying, I'm praying right now that she doesn't lose that. I know that girl's got character. I know she's got strength. I know what they're doing in that place. They're trying to take every bit of character and strength out of her because the king wants a Vashti replacement. And because he wants a Vashti replacement, he wants a different model this time, one that doesn't use her brain, one that doesn't say, I'm not going to do that. I'm just looking for an automaton that I can have. And there's someone outside praying, it won't be like that. It won't be like that. I know, I know some of you are church leaders in this place today. I encourage you to pray for your church members that everyone has that spark of life. There was one church I preached at in Birmingham. And I said to the pastor, I said, you do realize your church has amazing influence in this city. He said, how come? I said, well, have you ever drawn a map of where everybody is on Monday morning? He said, no, 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 I, I'm just aware of where they all are on Sunday morning. <laughs> I said, well, you need to know where they are on Monday morning because that is the measure of the church's influence in this city. Do you know what that pastor did? He went to his church members and said, do you think you could ask permission from your employer if I could just come and spend an hour in your office just to see what you do and to know how to pray for you? I thought it was incredible. I never expected him to respond like that when I said that. But he took it so seriously. He said, I, I'm, I'm laboring every week to put a spark in these people, but I want to see that spark operating when they're in the workplace. I want to see it making a difference where they are, and I want to be there to find out if there's anything I'm missing in my teaching of them so that I can be more effective in encouraging them to serve where they are. Really spoke to my heart. I love this Mordecai guy who paces up and down and, and says, I'm believing that God's doing something. I'm, I'm believing for her welfare. But Mordecai also said something else. Just before that, in verse 10 of Esther chapter 2, it said, Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. To sum up the advice that I think he was giving her was, Keep your heart open, but keep your mouth closed. <laughs> and that can be hard. But I think there was a reason for it. It wasn't that he was putting a permanent embargo on her speaking. Because eventually, he was the one who prompted her to speak out. But there was a time when things were being worked in her heart and her life. One of the big keys in spiritual warfare is your level of alertness. Why do you think Paul was so effective when he arrived in Ephesus? It was because Aquila and Priscilla had walked the streets and prayed and they knew the environment. They'd started tackling some of the principalities and powers. They were dealing with the Diana spirit. They were dealing with these things already. They weren't great speakers. They were quite good on the one-to-one. -one. They were able to take Apollos aside, but they couldn't have preached in the synagogue if they had. They would have done, and they didn't. 
But even in their silence, God was working something in their lives. When Ezekiel arrives in exile to join all the others in the Babylonian exile, he doesn't speak immediately. He sits by the river, Kibar, and, and gets to understand the environment. There's a place for just being alert. You know, you can go in somewhere and you can make an instant diagnosis. And then you need to think, but maybe I need to wait and see. Someone once said, you can, you can make a comment on a country 24 hours after you've arrived. But the next time you speak about it should be 24 years after you've been there because it's going to take that long to really understand it. And sometimes it's like that. We, we, we're so quick to speak and yet somehow God's trying to work a God-honoring faith in our lives. Some of us say so much that by the time we say something important, everyone stopped listening to us. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? And so this advice that she was given, I, I've got a sense that by this point, Mordecai was thinking, now he hadn't got the benefit of what's written in Romans 8, but I think he was of the same mind that somehow God is going to work this together for good. Even though she's been dragged into that harem, somehow God is going to work this for good. And so he's believing for this. He's, he's mentoring her with that in mind. It's exciting, isn't it, really? I'm going to ask myself, have I really appreciated all the people that have mentored me over the years? How many people have actually been shaping me so that I can do the things that I'm doing now? If I hadn't been prepared to, to obey some of the seemingly crazy injunctions I was given at times from different people. Trust me, do it this way, they'd say. I've been around longer than you have. There's some wisdom here. And I think, oh dear, oh dear. You know, is that really wisdom or is that senility? You know, you sometimes start thinking like that, don't you? Think, no, there must be a better and a fresher way. But sometimes when I've had to hold off and think, there's a greater wisdom that I can learn. One of the most amazing testimonies is that of Zechariah in the New Testament, you know? He's been told in the temple that his wife is going to have a son. And then he's kept silence for nine months. But when he speaks, my goodness, that is one of the most amazing prophecies in the whole of the New Testament. It was nine months in the cooking. You know, some of us are in a meeting and we get an impression flashed into our head and it's out of our mouth even before we've had time to think about it. And yet that word matured in him. The day spring from on high has visited us. Wow! He, he really got this. He, he got it so clear, not only what John the Baptist was going to be, but who Jesus was going to be and what was going to happen. And that's amazing. So sometimes keep your mouth closed, even whilst you're keeping your heart open. I'm going to leave it at this point, because I think we've laid a foundation. I've said a little bit about, you know, if you're serious about taking on the devil, you need to keep fit by being aware of the world and the flesh. 
because we're fighting on three fronts. The world, the flesh, and the devil. But you can win. You can win. God's already put a spark of individuality in you. Spiritual warfare is not about being a giant. It's about being able to slay giants. David was not a giant. He was just a cheeky teenager. <laughs> but he was fit. He, he'd, he'd sorted some things out in his life. And there was a spark on the inside of him, a spark of individuality. Even though his brothers weren't going to go to the fight, I'm going to go to the fight. And that, fanning that into flame. I'm going to pray right now for each one of us that we'll recognize that spark of individuality that God has put in our life. And that we're going to determine that no matter what the world throws at us, no matter what the flesh pulls us towards, that we're going to keep that spark. Because if we haven't got that spark, it's going to be hard to win the fight. But if you've got that spark, if you've got that spark, the devil will try and put it out. But you can fan into flame. Father, as we just bow our heads before you now, we want to thank you that you do not treat us as commodities, but you treat us as individuals that are fearfully and wonderfully made. You put an individuality and a spark in our lives that that you want to fan into flame, something which comes alive when your spirit comes into our otherwise dead spirits. And when we become one spirit with the Lord, what a transformation takes place in our lives. Lord, as we just bow before you now, we can see that the big battles that have been won have been won by people who had that sense that they still counted for something in the eyes of God. Thank you that that was true of Esther, despite everything that she went through. And Lord, I just pray for each one of us that it'll be true of us too. And I pray for those of us who are in environments where we feel it is incredibly tough. The work environment, the home environment, wherever it is. And I just pray, Lord, that you're going to give us the grace that will help us say with confidence, I have faith that can overcome in this situation. Others might have flared up and failed, but by God's grace, I'm going to have the faith that brings the victory. Work it in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.